0: related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout referenced during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Let's get started this evening with a a prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, Dr. Meehan. Thank you. Thank you very much. So welcome back, everyone, uh, and welcome back uh, any uh, new participants, or welcome any new participants. I don't know if I need to say much in the way of introduction, To Cicero uh, you can check out the previous video which is already up I saw on the website which is great where I kind of do a quick rundown what I thought I'd do is by way of introduction is uh, mention why I chose this passage among an absolute embarrassment of riches any ten pages of this document uh, could be uh, talked about at length uh, and, and be a very fruitful discussion but I chose these because it's one of his curious turns. Uh, I want to explain the way this works. What we've been looking at is book one of the three mm-hmm. uh, books of Deofikis, and book one is particularly the argument for onestum, right? The moral right, the moral good, uh, the honorable. What is moral rectitude? Book two is the useful. How to you know what's useful to you? For instance, book two has uh, discussions like you know. It's good to acquire some power uh, for yourself, i.e. friends, wealth, property, and a reputation. Those are good securities that can help you do a lot of other good things, but they're not good in themselves. No one sort of says, you know, I'm going to live for power except for the psychotics and the tyrants. But, but, but nevertheless, uh, there are things you should have some of, right? Um, you should, you know, it's good to be a citizen, right? And you should fight for your rights or those sorts of things. It's common sense in one sense, but he actually takes a look at it theoretically. And then the third book of the uh, On Duties or the Deo Fikis is where he looks at all uh, the situations where someone would think that that the expedient or the useful is somehow in contradiction with the good and the honorable. And his argument, as I mentioned last week, is that when you mistake that, it's essentially a question of appearances. You've mistaken the reality of the thing. You didn't see the thing well enough. Uh, And so you decided that something that you think is base and low, that is ugly uh, and wrong, is something that needs to be done, uh, despite you having a more beautiful idea of what you might do. But Cicero would say, actually, nah, what you're really saying to yourself is, this is a more beautiful option but really in reality you know it's sort of ugly and so you have this problem and that fight uh that internal dialogue has to be um sort of you know resolved with good doctrine uh, particularly the natural law but it's not just the natural law there also has to be a kind of artful understanding of the true ugliness of your expedient choice so-called uh and you also need to see that moral rectitude is more beautiful than you thought and also more useful that it is more expedient to be moral so there's this weird interplay between natural law reasoning and but also this question of appearances, the way things look. Think of the Eve before the tree of the garden. In the garden, of uh, the knowledge of good and evil, right? It's 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 lusty and and looks delicious, right? It's, there's an appearance, uh, you know, sort of question. Not just the rule, right? The rule is don't do X, Y, and Z. But then I see that this thing is beautiful uh, and worthy of my choice. So that is to say, this. Rhetorical philosopher, and he is literally Ciceronian philosophy is oftentimes referred to as rhetorical philosophy, right? He's going to pay a lot of attention to beauty, as you know from the reading today, and particularly the appropriate or the fitting, or the decorous what's proper, and that's that's because it really uh, it really is a kind of question of judgment and how to shape that judgment. Lastly. We can sort of put this uh, in liberal arts terms, since I see you're having a good uh, discussion upcoming about the liberal arts, which uh, Andy and I have put our heads together many times about such things, and it's obviously an excellent thing to be thinking on. This is part of the justification of the liberal arts, right? The arts, right? Understanding grammar, story, poetry, clear reasoning, but also beautiful communication and rhetoric. The knowledge of reality around you, uh, the stars and the heavens, uh, number and Uh, proportion—that is to say, seeing the the values and the harmonies and the relations of all things in an artful way, right? The culmination of which is in rhetoric, which is the putting forth of the truth in a beautiful way, Mm -hmm. right? That this is actually training for moral action. For moral wisdom, for uh, living a good life, that you actually are going to train your artistic sensibility, if you will, to say to see clearly with the penetrating sort of doctrines of reason, but also with that sort of hard to describe subtle fittingness and properness, and that's what the passage we we, we, we put uh, put up for discussion tonight really concerns is that it's not just a rule it's a rule rightly applied in an artful and excellent way just properly now why that is is hopefully we can get to that in a certain certain way but it might be best to discuss what that is and so maybe we just start with this sort of initial conversation uh at uh, section 93. um and we can come back to 92 if you want and by the way i I want to talk about this first initial discourse on the appropriate, uh, but then I want to just there's I want to kick it to you all to what passages do you want to discuss? Where do you want to go? Last time was a little more guided, but I'd really like these ten pages. They're all of a piece uh, and they're all reinforce you know a series of uh, really interesting teachings. So we can go anywhere and take up any of your questions. But let's go particularly to ninety three. And you have it in your handout. So I'm on page 95, actually. But it's paragraph 93 at the very bottom. Kathleen, would you be willing to read that for us? Do you have audio?
2: I do, yes. We have next to discuss the one remaining division of moral rectitude. That is, the one in which we find considerateness and self-control, which give, as it were, a sort of college to life. It embraces also temperance complete subjection of all the passions and moderation in all things under this head is further included what in latin may be called decorum propriety for in greek it is called um, such is its essential nature that it is inseparable from moral goodness for what is proper is morally right and what is morally right is proper The nature of the difference between morality and propriety can be more easily
1: felt than expressed. Thoughts on this? Questions?
3: I'll toss something out there just to get the conversation started. I think, I don't know if it's ingrained in everyone else's like psyche as it is with mine, but like I kind of, this doesn't seem, I mean, in one sense it's obviously true and it's like intuitive, but it like, If I compare it to what's kind of like ingrained in my memory of like, okay, to be morally good or like to answer the call, the holiness, we sometimes associate that with like abandoning worldly things. And connected with that is like a care about appearance. You know what I mean? Like, I think we're used to thinking appearance and associating that caring about appearance with vanity, always like a negative thing, as opposed to attributing a positive aspect to that.
1: Yeah. It it might be worth uh, looking at this word at the top of page 97, a sort of polish to life.
4: I love that. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Right. It's a, it's a beautiful phrase and it's, 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 it's actually in one sense, it's exactly right. It's a great translation. And in another sense, it's like the shiny, Top of a of a deep pool, right? That you can't see how deep it is because it's it's shining with light. Uh, that that concept, if you look over on the first line of the Latin, ornatus vitae or ornatus vitae, the ornateness or the ornament of life. Think of a Christmas ornament, right? Now, what does ornament do? Like, is it just polish? Is it just sort of like it, this additional? bit of... It's uh, like the
2: icing on the cake.
1: Yeah, the icing on the cake. It
2: enhances the beauty that's there.
1: That's right. It enhances the beauty that's there. What is your uh, thought about polishing your shoes? Like, why do you do it? What's wrong with the scuffs on your shoes? Isn't that sort of honest and true that your shoes are scuffed?
4: Mm.
1: Like you've had a busy day and, you know, you were were kneeling down a lot and so you scuffed the tips of your shoes because you were at, at church. Praying and so the tip of your shoe
2: is as far as appearance goes, there's an element that I think we have lost in our culture today of respecting dressing up, not dressing up necessarily, but dressing nicely out of respect for others. You know, it's one thing when you dress appropriately. So on the farm I definitely wear work clothes, but I try to make a point to change when I go into town. So I'm not wearing my grungy farm clothes into town out of respect for those whom I encounter I don't know if this you know pertains to that as well to some degree
1: I think it does I think it does very much when you think of uh, at section 99 I want to come back to this passage again but you 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 touched on it it seems so worthy of of reflection but at section 99 on page 101 in your handout that bottom paragraph Says, we should therefore, in our dealings with people, show what I may almost call reverence towards all men. Reverencia adversus homines, right? Not only toward the men who are the best, but toward others as well, right? So the optimi and the reliquorum, like everybody else, do not just, mm-hmm. you know, human respect. Yes, Jane.
4: When I worked, I worked for several years with developmentally um, disabled grown-ups, and they had very challenging behaviors, and we were always trained and taught that we needed to dress very well, I mean, not opulent not or anything, but very neatly and, and present a, a good... Because when we did that, when we went out into public, we dressed them better too, they were more accepted because of how we looked and behaved. They were more accepted and welcome regardless of their behavior, because we were showing respect to them. to I don't know if I'm saying it right, but we were elevating their dignity with our own presentation of our own dignity. that make sense? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Well, and the word dignity gets thrown around quite a bit in this passage by Cicero actually. Dignos. He, he actually speaks of our dignity uh, in a number of passages. Um, let me go back to this this question of or not to for a moment, and that question of shining your shoes and Kathleen, your point's very well taken. Sort of out of respect for others and sort of treating them. as very much you know you're 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 a Ciceronian already, Kathleen. I don't know if you need to be here anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 the uh, that that understanding of putting a certain polish on something, right, is in a certain sense this understanding of putting reason into everything right sort of there's a, there's a certain sort of reasonableness to it but but it's not just putting reason into it because you wouldn't shine your shoes right you know just out of reason right you would shine your shoes because reason tells you something about what something about the world around you something about other people something about concern for them, concern for reflecting something true, or something not, something beyond the material uh, or factual truth, right? Sort of, it's true that my shoes get scuffed, so I would wear my shoes shined, and therefore I'm uh, hiding the truth of the scuffing of my shoes. But what truth am I revealing? Well, I'm revealing that I have reason. I'm revealing that I want to appear in a beautiful manner because that's what a beautiful human being is, is beautiful because of our reason, our dignity. Uh, And, and also that's the sort of the, the the sort of purpose or the, the uh, driving force behind it. But it's not just that it's also the, out of respect for others in this way that you want other people to see beautiful things. You want other people to, to, actually look at something and go, oh, what a nice man. You know, sort of like you want to, you are like, that's why I wear the tie. Like, hello, I'm, I'm it's, you know, like I have a certain polished look, right? And that's, when you ever read a tie catalog, they always say, you should wear a tie because, uh, you know, the buttons on the front of your shirt just don't have a very polished look. Well, why, why not? I mean, I button my tie, you know, what, what's the point? Well, there's a certain amount of presentation of a complete whole person that you want to give the whole. And that's what ornatus is. Ornatus is the Latin translation of the word cosmos, which means a beautifully well-ordered whole. And when you beautify things and you don't let the shoes seem scuffed because then that highlights the scuffing and it puts your eyes on the the part. Right. And nobody finds parts of things attractive, handsome or uh, lovable. They find holes, right? If no one ever fell in love with a supermodel's arm, right? Disse- you know, dissevered from her body, right? You look at a beautiful woman and you go, she is beautiful. You wouldn't say, wow, her, you know, her eye on a platter or something would be beautiful. No, parts aren't beautiful. Holes are beautiful, right? We're attracted to whole beauties, cosmos, the stars and, it, and the whole order of things. Uh, so when you present yourself with that ornatus what you've done is you've essentially taken the extra care to realize that people aren't just minds right they have sensible appetites and they bring into themselves right you or anything else that they see in a beautifying way uh, where they sort of take it in as a first as a phantasm as uh uh, thomas aquinas would put it right first comes the phantasm so it's a it's a kind of a regard for for uh both the human mind and human feeling Now, there's some questions i think yeah kathleen
2: well more of a comment that sure, um thanks. in portraying the beautiful or at least striving to insofar as we can it elicits that desire and goodness from others you know it it is interesting i've noted in observation and experience how people's behavior changes or can change based on in reaction to how somebody is dressed or how someone speaks or acts. So one of the reasons for acting in a polished manner is to elicit that same beauty from others.
1: Right. And this is actually one of the beautiful things about Cicero's teachings is he's so in tune with what, you know, you might call our mimetic nature that we are imitative creatures. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. We imitate things we see. This is why you really worry about your children's friends group. Like what's their social circle of your child? Because they're going to imitate what they see. And you want to make sure that their teachers are of upright character. Uh, It's why you don't listen to uh, music that has a basic moral setting you don't agree with. Right? Because you listen to it long enough, you're going to take on, almost by osmosis, a sort of imitative character. You're going to be molded by that which is around you. That's why we care about beautiful architecture. That's why people complain about ugly churches. Right? Just, you don't want ugliness because you're going to be more ugly as a result, and you're going to be more beautiful. But this is what's so beautiful about this teaching of the appropriate or the decorum. That it's absolutely, he says, it's inseparable from moral goodness, right? And this is the passage you read, Kathleen. But it's it it really it it takes as its base moral goodness, but it's this extra sheen, this extra polish that goes beyond simply doing the right thing. It's this added characteristic that the right thing will have this sort of glowing effect. It will have a social effect. It will have some kind of noticeable um, effect in the world and principally that mode is through imitation other people will see that you put reason and considerateness into whatever you did and and they'll be moved to imitate it
2: sorry another thing as i'm looking at this talking about considerateness and self-control temperance complete subjection of all the passions and all of this is essential to the nature and inseparable from moral goodness is that not also because the the rational being was created to have their passions subject to the will and if when we flip that around which is what our culture has primarily done we cannot be morally good because we're allowing our base passions to control or dictate our will rather than vice versa.
1: Yes, so I agree, and there, and and you're you're uh, you are in a certain sense kind of talking about some of these some of these passages uh, here in the in the in the reading. Uh, it's worth noting that this section is the technically the introduction of the virtue of temperance. Right, he's done he's done practical wisdom or prudence. He did it very briefly because the entire book is an instruction in prudence. Uh, And so he kind of just touches on it quickly and is like, now on to everything else. Uh, Here's to help you be prudent. He talks about justice, but when he does justice, he doesn't say not just justice. We're going to call it the social virtue, which we talked about somewhat last week. Uh, And he says societas, the social virtue is this kind of, it includes justice, but it's also, these are actually mentioned at the very beginning of our reading Uh, He says generosity and beneficence is actually on page 95 at the bottom of paragraph 92. Uh, He says, you know, he's he's talking about those virtues. So he kind of he pushes hard on charity and self-giving as this this important social dynamic that we can forget if we just pursue our individual good and we worry about justice. We forget about Going the extra mile for other people and, and, and pouring ourselves out. Then he talks about uh, courage, but he doesn't just talk about courage. He spends a ton of time talking about magnanimity, great heartedness, the willingness to rise above circumstance uh, and contempt, like have contempt for the lower order considerations, to be sort of great hearted uh, and be able to say, you know, no to comfort, no to avoiding suffering. Uh, and he spends all this time talking about magnanimity, not courage per se, because why would you, with the sort of prudence of why would someone be courageous if they didn't have strong, high-hearted desires for the good, right? So you actually, in order to get courage, you'd have to argue this. In order to get justice, you'd have to argue charity, right? And so, and, and hopefully the best will go all the way. But even if you want the one thing, you need to argue to the to the to the higher orders and here to get temperance right he's going to argue uh and not just to get temperance it's a he's having a serious like philosophical argument too but to get temperance you would have to care about or or decorum or or the the appropriate you would have to say you know what hmm how much how many peanut m&ms from this family sized package? should I eat at Christmas, right? How many? What would be temperate? Now, if you say, what would be temperate? It almost doesn't give you any sort of handle from which to sort of grab hold of some deliberate, you know, a deliberatable, you know, a, you, know you could deliberative concrete number. But if you said, what would be appropriate? Then it's sort of, you start to think about like, Oh, what would it be like to see dad with like a, you know, handful after handful of peanut M and M's like, that would be kind of ugly, kind of unfitting for dad. Right. Who's supposed to set an example, you know, so what would be appropriate? Maybe one, two, three, or one for each child, you know, something, right? Well, how do you bring reason to the thing, right? So, sort of, uh, you know, or four for each child. No, and to the, uh, but you can see how when you start to think about the beautiful and the appropriate and the fitting, that it actually winds up being an incredibly helpful way to get to the temperate because of that added polish of bringing reason to everything. The, uh, I think we might do well to just read and comment on uh, that section 95 at the bottom, because he, he makes this argument of sort of the appropriate is is it's theoretically separate from the moral, but it's always going to be moral. And that's part of his thesis, right? Is that, you know, the, the beautiful thing, the thing that's sort of most elegant, most excellent is always going to be the moral thing as well. You're never going to find true beauty or the most beautiful separate from the most good, most moral act, right? So there's not sort of like, oh, it's just so exquisite when you see a thief pickpocket somebody. Like, it's just <laughs> a beautiful deed. And he's sort of like, yeah, no, you know, you're not, you haven't thought through the whole thing. You don't see interiorly the grotesque desires of this man. Uh, You you know, uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, his one of his films, Goodfellas, I believe, the end of which takes you inside the mind of a panicked gangster who was very glamorous at the beginning, but by the end, he's like looking for helicopters and panicking. You sort of, when you see the full story, interior and exterior you realize its ugliness when there's a certain glamour that if you're not attentive uh, you could fall for but that's that's essentially a false decorum a false beauty but let's read 95 and and comment and feel free to hop in interrupt with a question but i'm just going to read this for a second monica you want to read for us um, just, i'm just starting at paragraph 95
4: this propriety therefore of which i am speaking belongs to each division of moral rectitude And its relation to the cardinal virtues is so close that it is perfectly self-evident and does not require, uh, say, abstruse process of reasoning to see it. For there is a certain element of propriety perceptible in every act of moral rectitude. And this can be separated from virtues theoretically better than it can be practically.
1: Okay. So just on that point, what he's saying is, we actually don't need to have an argument because everyone knows, like down to their bones right away, that a, a good moral act is a beautiful act. Aristotle puts it the other way. He actually says in the Nicomachean Ethics the whole point of moral virtue is, right, that the mind seizes upon the beautiful and then does it. That's it. Like when you're talking about moral philosophy, you're talking about the beautiful. Which, by the way, since you're going to do liberal arts next, that's a huge part of the justification for the liberal arts as a training for the good life. That is to say, you need to know what beauty is, for you to know what a beautiful act is. Right? And the more you know of that, the more likely you are to, to have a chance of practicing it. But uh, in
4: reading this in reading this, we can train our minds to recognize it. Maybe hopefully, that's why I'm here to understand better how to recognize what's beautiful at the base level.
1: Right. We, 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 I, I, had, I, I taught uh, some of this recently to uh, uh, some of my students here at, at Hillsdale. And um, there was a, I, I got up out of my chair and actually walked across the room. And just said, you know, if you were at a party and you walked across the room like this, hey, hey everybody, like this, right and just walked over the room, across the room to, to gesture to a friend, a whole bunch of people would kind of just go, "Ah, okay. But, but if you just walked you said, "Hello, hey, right Calm, a certain restraint, a certain balance. your limbs aren't flailing all over, you're not loud, right You don't distort your face. Look like, good. Ah! there's literally those sorts of those sorts of habits of refinement of of propriety those are the kinds of things that you know he would say cicero would say and i think you can say like look no one's going to fault you for not doing this in a certain sense like they're not going to say oh that person's a bad person because they didn't put the added refinement in to a given moral act right But what he would say is, well, what you didn't do is you didn't moralize the act. You can cross the street in a way that's loving, respectful, beautiful, and true. Or you can just do it carelessly and negligently or hastily, like just sort of busily going across the street, right? So in one sense, what he's doing is he talks about mean duty versus, you know, that perfect duty we talked about last week. But in in another, he's actually raising the stakes, He's saying if you care to beautify everything you do, you're essentially practicing the social virtue. What we would say, you're, that's Christian charity, right? You're honoring God. You're you're pleasing your fellow man. I once, uh, the abbot of Cistercian monastery in Irving, Texas. I remember one day a group of people were trying to talk to him, and he was talking to a student at Cistercian Prep. And someone came up to him, and they sort of asked him a question. He sort of looked at him calmly, smiled, and then just went right back to the student. From I remember, my adult self was kind of like, "That's a little much. That's kind of rude. You know, I just that's ridiculous." But he finished the conversation, and then he turned in full charity. and said, "Okay, what's up?" And that guy had been used to it. I was not used to an abbot acting like this. Right? I'm sort of Johnny Layman, and <laughs> and I was sort of taken aback. But I realized what he was trying to do is like, no, no, no. I'm living my life according to reason. And I'm going to finish the conversation with the student. I'm not going to allow the next thing to crash in. We're going to do things in an ordered, peaceful, not a careless, a negligent or a hasty way. So we're just going to hold off on that. And, you know, and now we're here. And I just it stuck with me as that is absolutely appropriate for an abbot. Now, for me, right, father of seven, you know, that would be inappropriate if my wife came up to me, right, and said, honey, I need X, Y, and Z, and I'd be like, no. You know, and, then, and went and continued talking with the child, right? Because that's not proper to my sort of more sort of paternal domestic role, right? I'm not an abbot. It's not a monastery where you can sort of, Push on that. There's there's a certain flexibility that would be required in a lay thing. But how do I know that? You say, well, Doctor Meehan, you're wrong. You know, you should be just like that abbot. It's like, mm, I don't know. Consult your own conscience. Think about it. Right. There's a certain amount of sort of taste that you start to see what would be appropriate and prudent, good and beautiful and true to do. But that requires you to know a lot about what you're doing and where you are and all the relationships. Right. And it would require you to know never to take off your wife, because that's just job one. Uh, but 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 also that you know that that you'd have a certain grasp of the appropriate, which that abbot did. It was absolutely the most appropriate thing. It was awesome. It was highlighting his monastic obe- culture of obedience, order, hierarchy, calm, meditation, etc. etc. Just as I letting my wife interrupt the conversation of childhood. <laughs> is talking about how it's one big family and how she and I are the most important relationship in the entire family. Right. So it's according to reason, but it's also beautiful. Right. So you've got to know the, you got to know the reason behind the thing, but then it helps to be thinking and sharpening as Monica said with and that beauty. Yes, please.
3: talk to me and I, I don't know if this is taking us in a, in a wrong route, but I, I kind of want to push back because I feel like just not to make it like an echo chamber. I feel like there's other people who are, it's common enough where, like, you know, when you when when Monica read that it, this is perfectly self-evident, I'm like, okay. I know there's a lot of people in my life that would view that like that polishing as being inauthentic or uh, superficial, and I would agree that like when you like present these two things, you're like, okay, what's better to do something, like. Good and beautifully at the same time, or it, I understand the thesis is you can't really do something good without it being beautiful, but I don't think anyone would argue okay, beauty like adds something. But I guess I'm wondering where does this like fairly common misunderstanding come from that like refinement is snobbish or like, um, yeah, I guess snobbish right like that's like the cliche like when you want when you're a teenager and you want to like you want to be yourself you're going to dye your hair and you're going to like do this like where is that coming from
1: well so yeah no that's great uh you've totally ruined the seminar no i'm kidding no no, it's great the uh it's no it's it's so one thing tongue-in-cheek for cicero this doesn't even require argument that's actually called crederation right because he's about to argue for about 10 pages, (laughs) the point, right? So it does require argument in every generation. Uh, Two, refinement can be snobby, right? Refinement can oftentimes be class warfare, right? The oligarchs versus the demos, like I'm better than you, right? I'm, uh, look at my fancy pants, refinement. uh, And if you want the best example of refinement, totally divorced from moral principle, right? I recommend a picture of Dorian Gray, Lord Henry Wotton, the sort of snobby, effete, absolutely corrupting, foul character who just, play me another Nocturne, Dorian, sort of all these beautiful things, right? But beauty can certainly be divorced from moral goodness. I think that the interesting point here is he's, he's pushing really hard on, no, moral goodness, it, he says at, um, at uh, 94, about halfway down the page, for whatever propriety may be, it is manifest that only when there is pre-existing moral rectitude, right? So he's making a bold, bold claim here that, that like refinement isn't what I'm talking about, right? I don't mean the sort of like.
4: Superficial.
1: Yeah, right. I think that's a, that's a good way to, but I, so it, because moral rectitude has to be prior, Mm-hmm. But what he's what he's confident is that if there is moral rectitude, like real authentic moral life here, that if you bring refinement to it, you've you you've you've actually improved it. You've you, you've hit the mark even better. You've gone from doing justice mm-hmm. right, to doing charity. Right. Not just avoiding violating other people. You've also respected their feelings. Uh, And that might be a good place to turn if we look at uh, Dr. Mia Oh please, 99 is where I'd like to go next. As we're
2: turning there is there also a connection to Andy what you're talking about with the superficiality or insincerity I guess of this polish or propriety in that sentence this can be separated from virtue theoretically better than it can (laughs) be practically because isn't this propriety that they're speaking of and the moral rectitude grounded in virtue, which is that that median strip between two extremes?
1: Right. So the mean, right. This is this is another point, and this is this is Cicero bringing the 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 his his Aristotelian peripatetic teachings from the Nicomachean Ethics, sort of up into a, a more kind of an easier or clearer way to see it. He, what he's saying is. Don't be misled. The mean is not a mathematical thing. And Aristotle says this, but nevertheless, he, you know, pushes hard on it as a mean, but the a mean is, uh, seems to be a balance between two extremes. And so you're finding some sort of quantity, right? Uh, just by virtue of the, 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 the way it's talked about, what he's trying to push hard on is no, it's a quality. It's, it's, it's beauty. It's refinement. Yes. Uh, but it's, It's a kind of, you know, perfection of the thing. And it requires you to care about that next extra level of really hitting the mark. Right. That sort of like, ting. that's exactly it. That's what I should have done. This is how I should walk up to my, my, my father's casket. Right. This is the proper way to treat him. Right. This is how I should have written a thank you note to my, Sister-in-law, or you know, like those sort of, like making sure that you go the extra mile, right? I should genuflect with full rigor as much as my health can allow, like as opposed to a sort of like lame little curtsy or something, right? That that's what he's pushing on. Uh, Let me let me take you to page uh, section ninety-nine because I think this would be very helpful. I'll I'll just read and gloss here on ninety-nine. We should therefore. In our dealings with people, show what I may most call reverence towards men, just as we read before, not only towards the men who are best, but toward others as well. For indifference to public opinion, and this is to your point, Yandy, implies not merely self-sufficiency, but even a lack of principle. Right? He's pushing really hard. Like if you don't care what other people think, that doesn't make you a hero. That makes you a jerk. Like you're actually not a good person, right? You don't you don't care about others, right? There is too a difference between justice and considerateness in one's relations to one's fellow men, right? So justitia versus uh, vericundium. It is the function of justice not to do wrong, right? And that's uh, violare, not to violate them, not to. Harm their person, right? Or take their property, right? Not to, to do something violative. Uh, it is the function of justice not to do wrong to one's fellow men, of consider- considerateness not to wound their feelings. And in this, the essence of propriety is best seen, right? That is to say, not only do you not want to harm them, you also want to treat them nicely, you want to treat them well, you want to make them comfortable, you want to make them happy. Right? Whenever you can, right? And, and he says other places in justice where sometimes you're going to have to upset people, right? When they've got the wrong ideas, and you're just going to have to do that. But you don't ever want to do that blithely, carelessly. Uh, you never want to do that uh, in a way that's uh, negligent, right? Because and this is this twofold sense he has. He keeps talking about reason and nature, right? or he'll say nature gives us reason and nature, right? That is to say, we have these two different properties, um, which is, that is our, our, our reason, made in the image and likeness of God, this power. But we also have our animal appetites and sensibilities, right? We can get easily wounded. We can be tired. Uh, We can, you know, not like a certain smell, you know, or, or just be, be, you know, easily irritated by a loud noise right and sort of like well i'm being just i'm being very just like you're not being sensitive to other people around you and their feelings right That is to say you're not thinking or acting with reason and reason would recognize that we're a composite being we're not just minds we're also bodies and our bodies need to be tended yeah jane please
4: I'm I'm thinking of of what we've been talking about, how behaving in these ways increases freedom within us, but it also shows that we recognize other people's dignity by, you know, being respectful to them, being considerate and stuff. Is that
1: right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Other thoughts on this? No, I think that's totally on the mark chain. Yeah. Um, let
1: me, uh, let me take it, uh, take you to two other passages that speak to this, and then and then perhaps there'll uh, we'll be time to just throw, throw it open if people want to ask about other passages, etc. Look at uh, section 106. So here he's pretty tough on sensual pleasure, right? He pushes hard. From this we see that sensual pleasure is quite unworthy of the dignity of man, and we ought to despise it and cast it from us. Think of the handful of peanut-sized and but if someone should be found who sets some value upon sensual gratification, he must keep strictly within the limits of moderate indulgence. <laughs> One's physical comforts and wants, therefore, should be ordered according to the demands of health and strength, not according to the calls of pleasure.
4: Hmm.
1: So don't put, ple- don't put having pleasure, but having health and strength. But he also says according to the demands of health and strength. You know so, so, what does your particular case demand? Uh, and if we only bear in mind the superiority and dignity of our nature, we shall realize how wrong it is to abandon ourselves to excess. that's to the mean Kathleen and to live in luxury and voluptuousness, and how right it is to live in thrift, self-denial, simplicity, and sobriety. But what he actually says here is content uh, continentur, Severe and sobrier. Severity, you have to be tough on yourself. You have to be cutting. You have to cut things out. You have to sort of ginsu knife comforts. You've got to let them go. <laughs> I think of Thomas More, one of Cicero's greatest greatest uh, uh, students. Thomas More was um would wear a hair shirt under his work gowns, and he would always have it, a, a silver tankard. Uh, at parties that he kept the cap on so no one could look in and see what he was drinking. He was drinking water uh, as opposed to wine. Uh, And so he'd be at the party having a great time, but he'd always have a tanker and he'd drink from it. But he wasn't indulging. He was actually being tough on himself so he could be uh, more in the service of others. It's right out of the end of Book of Proverbs, right? That if you want to be a leader, you're going to have to forego wine, right? The wine is for the poor. Uh, if you want to lead, you're going to have to give up the wine. Not all of it, probably, but but for the most part. But look where, so it sounds really tough. Like, that's real tough. Like, we got to be so tough on ourselves. And, and you're like, okay, well, what about those feelings? Weren't we talking about feelings a minute ago? Like, it might be, like, I might feel bad if I don't have any comforts. But then he says at 107, we must realize also that we are invested by nature with two characters. Now, if you look over in the Latin, there hmm. intelligendo es duabus quasi nos a natura indutos esse personis, two persona, two persons, two persona, right? And that's the the previous discussion of all these different kinds of actors, right, playing different roles. This is sort of it's a very interesting, and this is by the way, Cicero is where you get the foundations for personhood. By the way right his discussion of persona uh, and that's a whole i mean that that's literally we could do a whole other series on cicero and the foundations for personalism and what relational humankind is right this is all this whole moral teaching we've been talking about is not just being good individually for myself but being good in such a way that I'm very attendant to my relational situation right if i'm just but ugly that is to say if i don't do it in a in an proprietary way or an appropriate way. I've actually been unjust to others because now they're imitating my ugliness. Right. I think of this, I've lost my temper in front of my children and then I see them do the same thing. And you're like, Oh, I'm sure I could have done that better. You know, instead of maintain control uh, in a better way. But then he says, as it were, one of these characters, these persona is universal arising from the fact of our being all alike endowed with reason okay and with that superiority which lifts us above the beast or the brute from this all morality and propriety are derived the uh, and moral duty that's how we figure out what our duties are the other character is the one that is assigned individual in particular in the matter of physical endowment so right away we have immaterial, universal reason. And that's how you discern all your duties. That's how you know all propriety. And we also have our own body, our own character, our own makeup, like all of our particulars, right? We're not just angels, right? Uh, in that matter of physical endowment, there are great differences. And then he starts going through all of these particulars, right? This guy and that guy, <laughs> and how he was good and how he decided to be this way. And how this guy used genial conversation, and this one used irony. This other, uh, you know, concealed his plans and was tight-lipped. Another just shared with everyone. Right? At, at 109, then there are others quite different from these, straightforward and open, who think that nothing should be done by underhanded means or treachery. Amen. They are lovers of truth, haters of fraud. There are others who will still who will stoop to anything. And he goes on and on with all these different cases. Right, and then at one ten, right, says uh, just above one ten, countless other dissimilarities exist in natures and characters, and they are not in the least to be criticized. Right, so there's all kinds of diversity of character. Right, that is to say, there will be a different appropriateness for each person. There is, it's not just this sort of universal. You've got to be classy, right? You've got to be comply with whatever the aristocrats or the social, you know, uh, rulers of, of, of cachet and, and, you know, like what is the hipsterist hipster doing and I have to do that or whatever, you know, social hierarchy is. He's saying, look, there's a diversity here of propriety because each of us are particular and we have to find our particular propriety. And then he says, everybody, however, must resolutely hold fast to his own peculiar gifts insofar as they are peculiar only and not vicious in order that propriety which is the object of our inquiry may be the more easily be uh, may the more easily be secured that is to say you can't live according to reason you can't live in a considerate way if you treat yourself like some animal that can be ridden by sort of some universal law without any respect to it i mean put it this way you can't whip yourself to be what you're not like your reason can't make you be something else right Mm -hmm. different people have personalities health they start with different virtues and vices what's appropriate for them so there's a certain you got to be careful with this this rigor uh, that you can misread it he wants you to be as rigorous as you can be he wants you to be tacking and leaning hard to perfection but he also knows like look we're all crooked timber we're all different we all have to sort of figure out what our appropriateness our prep on our decorum is uh, and it'll be different for each person
2: st yeah. paul speaks of this then when he's talking about the different numbers of the body because everybody everyone has our own appropriate function. And if we try to fulfill the function of somebody else, we're going to fail or at least not do it well and neglect our own
1: function. That's right.
2: Is that the gist of this then?
1: Yeah. St. Paul was actually trained in one of the great Ciceronian mm-hmm. centers of the Roman empire. FYI, of that's course. a whole <laughs> other world of theology and discourse that, you know, when people are like, I think we were mostly done with discoveries of scripture, literally just send them to me i I would love like a legion of theologians to go like why don't you look into this and this and this pauline ciceronian overlay is amazing definitely powerful but you're exactly right but it's this. what you see is this really just it's it's so practical right it's look you have to beautify everything because everyone else around you right needs to, to be you know respected, they need to be treated with this dignity, but they're also going to imitate you if you do things in a way that's not considerate, that's neglectful, that's not bringing that beauty of reason. But reason says, okay, it's not just some Kantian rule that I apply to everything in all the same ways, and so it's just sort of sort of Prussian eins Einstein builds an empire, <laughs> we're going to just crush everybody into this one rule. It's no, you have to use your artistic sensibility to figure out what is my role? What is my persona? What's my character? And that can change. You know, right now I'm playing professor. I guarantee you when I'm with my brothers-in-law and we're slapping each other on the back, I don't I don't act this way. And I act differently. And when I act <laughs> this way, they get mad at me because I shouldn't be professorial <laughs> with my friends, right? So, you, you know, there's a certain situational ethics that you should be if you're if you're really trying to be practice the social virtue Mm -hmm. you're really attentive to other people and attentive and bringing reason to everything you're doing you want to make sure that that polish that persona that right that it's responsive rationally to the particular situation and the particular character jane
4: it can be very attractive to others like as far as good role modeling and stuff and then the negative I remember when I was young and I was foolish and I would smoke cigarettes you would smoke a cigarette somebody else would pick one up this this imitation I don't know where it comes from or somebody else picks, starts a cigarette you think oh and then you start a cigarette and it's you know you, you line up a cigarette it's it's not even conscious sometimes you just no. imitate
1: Cicero has a concept called the princeps, the prince. But it's, it's where we get sort of, uh, you know, once upon a time, you know, fairy tales of prince charming. It's where Machiavelli's prince comes from. He's obviously trying to sort of undo Cicero. But, but, uh, but his understanding of the prince or princeps was the one who captures the first place, primus kepi, sort of the, he who captures the first place. That is the first among equals, the first among friends. And it was it was the understanding that you should be pushing hard to the top of whatever it is you do, right? So if you're uh, a, a nurse on the floor, you should try to be the best nurse. Right? That's just what you want to do. You want to be the very best. Not because you want to beat other people, but it's just good to do the best. So you want to be the best. But that when that happens, right, and if you attend to that, Uh, or not to, if it has that polish, people will notice. You'll tend to receive honor in some way or another, and you'll be given responsibility, because remember, that's part of why you have to put forward your virtues in a beautiful way so that other people know to rely on you, right? That's actually part of building up society, is that you do things in a way that's known so that you can be relied on still further. But that once you become elevated in this process, that's the person everyone sees, right? The top person in a given group who's been elevated by whatever means is the one who's going to be imitated the most. And that's why you, the, the more you rise, the more Cicero wants you to be very concerned with ornatus, very concerned with decorum. Because the way you do things is the way that so many others are going to imitate you. Uh, and so it winds up being a sort of when you're elevated you actually have to care more about the art with which you do things which is why they're called the liberal arts those of the free human being right the arts of liberty for free people because free people are the kind who see and freely choose to imitate as opposed to people who are forced by the lash to do things by a tyrant or a master slave relationship hmm. right is so it that Free people work by imitation and not by force and fear. Uh, and so you actually need to learn these these moral arts, if you want to sort of mix categories for sort of Ciceronian fun, you need to learn these so that you can actually rebuild society.
4: You're teaching others it's good to be good.
1: That's right. That's one thing I also love about Cicero is he's always, he'll just say good things, like in the middle of some other paragraph, he'll be like, by the way, we all have to, be just at all times. And I just laugh. I'm like, you know what? Thanks. I kind of just need reminders sometimes, you know, like like be excellent to each other. You're like, yes, thanks for saying that. Like, that's useful too. It's very, very practical.
3: Well, like this is probably a good space for us to uh take a break here. And then I'm gonna make a couple of announcements and we'll transition into kind of a more formal QA. Thank you, Dr. Me, And I know this is, uh, I'm not just speaking for myself. This is a fresh perspective. It's a, you know, there's always uh, an, another level to improve upon. And it might be at first, there might be some listeners tonight that are like a little bit, I don't know, maybe disoriented or frustrated. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you commit to this whole spiritual thing. I'm kind of speaking in loose categories, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, as you think you're making progress there, you're like, oh, wait, I can't just abandon like this aspect. I got to like make the spiritual thing beautiful too. And uh, let's just embrace that kind of the fun adventure of growing in virtue and becoming uh, more and more excellent. So thank you for adding layers that I know were new for a lot of us. So Al Maloney's writing in and says, does section 110 from the reading here, does that fit with uh, uh, Polinius and Laertes with Polinius to Laertes? quote, and this, above all to thine own self be true. So I, that's a famous quote. And the question is, is that a parallel? Is that a connection to one town?
1: Yes. So the reference there is to Hamlet and Polonius, right? Polonius oh, yeah. is the, the counselor to the king. There's no doubt that Shakespeare thought very deeply about this book. Uh, and it appears in, a number of his works in lots of interesting and subtle ways. I'm not sure what you have in mind exactly, so let me work my way to it by taking you first to the bottom of section 108 and point you to this. The last sentence there, when he's going through all these different styles of leadership as a kind of way of talking about those differences in character of the second mm-hmm. persona, the bodily or you know the, the animal nature of us, Says especially crafty and shrewd was the device of Solon, who, to make his own life safer and at the same time to do considerably larger service for his country, feigned insanity. I submit to you that this may well be the 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 thing that raised his eyebrow. Like maybe I'll use that old story about Prince Hamlet, uh, because he's thinking about this, and Polonius says to thine own self be true, this above all, to thine own self be true. And then you have here, he says, look, at one ten. everybody, however, must resolutely hold fast to his own peculiar gifts insofar as they are peculiar only and not vicious Mm -hmm. in order that propriety easily be secured. For he must so act as not to oppose the universal laws of human nature, but while safeguarding those to follow the bent of our own particular nature and even if other careers should be better and nobler, we may still regulate our own pursuits by the standard of our own nature. For it is of no avail to fight against one's nature, or to aim at what is impossible of attainment. From this fact, the nature of that propriety defined above comes into still clearer light, inasmuch as nothing is proper that goes against the grain, as the saying is. That is, if it is in direct opposition to one's natural genius. Now, that is wise counsel, very wise, right? I'm going to run for Senate. Like, no, you're an alcoholic, like, and that will drive you to your grave, right? Don't run for Senate, right? I'm, I'm in D.C., forgive the analogy, right? Or, you know what, I want to be a teacher. Like, you have the worst temper of any person I know. I do not recommend teaching <laughs> as a profession, right? That's not for you. Right. I like working with my hands. So I'm going to be a brain surgeon. Like, no, man, like you're going to hate that. Like you like outdoorsy stuff. Like that's not the same thing. Right. Or someone's like, yeah, I want to be a surgeon. You're like, no, (laughs) you can't because you don't have the hands for surgery. Right. But this, if, but, but Polonius says is, you know, do this, be moderate, be this, but to thine own self, be true. This above all to thine own self be true. Cicero says the exact opposite, even though it sounds like that advice. He says, for we must so act as not to oppose the universal laws of human nature, right? But while safeguarding those, then we concern ourselves with the various, you know, particularities of our own character. Polonius seems like he's giving Cicero's advice, and he oftentimes does throughout the book, give very Ciceronian advice, except Just as Cicero's so careful to like, you have to order your words properly and you have to have a certain refinement or the way you speak. Well, for instance, let me give you an example. Cicero's very cautious about talking about prudence too much because if you talk about prudence, 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 you wind up being sort of calculating and overly self-regarding. So he, he says, yeah, you've got to be prudent, but let's not talk about it too much. Let's talk about how you are going to be prudentially just, or how to be prudentially temperate, or how to be prudentially a leader. Let's not let's not say prudence all the time. Let's just talk about courage, magnanimity, justice. Let's talk about the other virtues, right? Because if we talk too much about prudence, it'll all be about like how do I, what's my way through? What he's very conscious of the way you organize your language, how it creates. Right, a kind of image of the good, and even when you don't see a human being in front of you, if you see a collection of words about how to live, that's something that you're going to see in your mind as a whole, and you're going to be moved towards it. So Cicero is very careful how he lays out these virtues. That's why I was talking about how he, he doesn't just drop justice; he wants to frame it in societas and in beneficence and in in generosity, and he doesn't want to just talk about courage; he wants to talk about magnanimity because courage will send everybody to battle. I have to go to war in order to be, to be courageous. That's how Aristotle says, the peak of courage is battle. Cicero's like, well, what about facing enemies without a gun who, who could kill you, right? Like a mob in the street, right? And you don't get to shoot back. Or Abraham Lincoln, a peaceful statesman, right? Who gets assassinated, right? He's not, he's not getting to face off equally, right? He he's, keeps his hands down. Like so uh, the point being, Polonius is exactly not observing this concern. he says truths, but he says them in the wrong way, magnifying them incorrectly. His speeches are always in arrears and and just all out of order, even though they tend to be near the thing but the 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 composite problem is that he 's not rhetorically deaf and artful. And so what he winds up becoming is crafty and foolish. Uh, and so it's a bunch of Cicero inside out, like in a funhouse mirror, which is winds up looking like it should be something that would be good counsel and he'd be a good counselor. But in the end, corrupts his own son. It corrupts his servant. It corrupts the king, it corrupts his daughter. Because just as we've noted repeatedly, Cicero's advice is, if you take it the wrong way, it could be dangerous. You know, like, well, no, we don't want, we don't want to do that, right? It's like, yeah, no, it's got to be. You're going to pay attention. But he's very careful with his words, thank goodness.
3: It is a great question. I know we're kind of running late here. I mean, maybe we can end with this one. It was written in anonymously, but it's kind of a cool way to think about it. Um, this person's writing and is asking, could we think of the virtues as forms? and propriety as how these forms are embodied or live um
1: so in the sort of platonic sense i mean i think yes I, i'm i'm I, I don't want to make too much of that in 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 that i i just want to think about what that might entail in anything more than a kind of metaphorical sense right right, <laughs> right but but i but i i do think that seems like an apt metaphor in that the propriety of it is sort of like, okay, what is actually the instantiated image of this virtue in action going to be? What's it going to actually look like? You know, sort of, so it seems to me that's appropriate. And, and again, it sort of it features that pairing that he's, he's so wisely thinking about. And it's one in our tradition of we've got this mind that's free-ranging and powerful and rigorous and pure and clean and strict. And penetrating, but then we've got this funny body that's silly and uh, opaque and complicated, and you know requires a lot of you know sort of tending, and and, and that's that's the division between honestum and utile. It's the division between uh, the 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 virtue itself and the the propriety of it, how it extantiates itself out. So, sure, uh, as a metaphor, I think that's good, sort of a spiritual versus a physical.
3: I like it. First of all, thank you, Dr. Meehan, for uh, spending this time with us. Thank you all. um, I, I think it was too long between this one and the Senecan Seminar. We hope we can bring you back again sometime soon. I know we really appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website. At www.instituteofcatholicculture.org, or call us at five four zero six three five seven one five five, and may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. Saint John the Evangelist, pray for us.